The next article that we're going to talk about is hemp-fed cows get high and produce THC-laced milk. Oh, well, that's hip. (laughs) Yeah, these these cows are living the dream, I guess, maybe. Uh, We'll find out. Okay, well, the last one for me is about remote-controlled worms that can follow stop-and-go lights. We've done it. Welcome, everybody, to the 46th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We're a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science-adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyist. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of 2023. We have another science news episode for you guys. And it was difficult to pick out of all the cool science that has been done lately. But I think we did it. And we have some really, really cool scientific topics to talk with you guys about. So let's start. Okay, well, here we are in 2023. And uh, some really cool science happened in the last couple of months. Year. Year? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We only picked from the science since our last episode, but that was a while ago. So we had too much to pick out of. And uh, yeah, it was difficult to choose the, the, the best ones. There were too many cool options, but we tried our best. So the first one I want to talk about is from BBC News. And it talks about how the US approves world's first vaccines for honeybees. Oh, <laughs> what kind of vaccine? So, so, okay. There are a lot of things that threaten honeybee populations, right? Mm-hmm. Think that we have all heard about this. There's like parasites that are a problem, diseases, pests. There's also this phenomenon called colony collapse disorder, where worker bees just randomly abandon a hive and leave behind the queen mm-hmm. without really any reason. It, uh, it sounds very millennial of them, but okay. <laughs> we are millennials, so we can say that. <laughs> um, but there is this disease that they now have made a vaccine for. A company called Dellen has done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for an American fall brood disease, which is a bacterial uh, disease that attacks the larvae in the colonies and kills them, basically, so that the colony collapses after a while, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no treatment for it. It's super contagious to other colonies. And there's no cure. The only treatment method is uh, burning the infected colonies along with the bees, which mm-hmm. I wouldn't call a treatment, but okay. <laughs> um, also, all the equipment needs to be burned. And then all the nearby colonies need to be treated with antibiotics in the hope to not have them infected. So this is just bad. If you get this in your colonies as a, as a beekeeper, you, you are... There goes your entire thing. Yes, mm. exactly. And it's a bacteria called Penicibacillus larvae. Okay. Uh, and what they now have done is kill this bacteria and then add a little bit into royal jelly and feed this to the queen. And then the queen is exposed to this bacteria and then all the eggs and the larvae that she lays are also immune. So that's really Weird. cool. Yeah. Problem solved, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they are now they, this, this product is now uh, available. Yeah, yeah uh, it's it's uh, not widely first. They're first trying in a, in a few uh, in in a couple of clinical um, for... trials for bees. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're they're giving it to a few select beekeepers first to to try out, but it seems to be working good and fine. And um, since 
The other option is to burn your colonies. I mean... I think everyone will lean towards hashtag feed the queen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, that was our first uh, science news. Yes. Okay, then I would like to actually start with my honorable mention. It, uh, it's not so much that, I, that you can talk about in length for too long, but it's, I found it just funny enough that I want to talk about it a little <laughs> bit because I don't know if our listeners know, but I'm into death metal. And the, the title of this sort of article is Study Shows That Bats Growl By Channeling Their Inner Death Metal Singer. What? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So at first you might think, what? Yes. Um, so the original paper is from Plus Pilos uh, bio Biology. And uh, so what they did is that they, in the actual paper, they looked at the larynxes of deceased bats, eight in total, I believe. Uh, and what you have is like you have your vocal cords, which humans have, of course, but you also have like your false vocal folds. And those are in humans not really doing much, but in bats, they're a bit more active. And those false vocal cords or vocal folds, sorry, uh, are also used by death metal singers and sort of uh, throat yeah, singer, singers as well to sort of get that really growling voice that you hear with death metal. Okay. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. Yeah. What I'm really hearing here is that death metal artists are channeling their inner bats. I guess bats <laughs> did come before death metal, yes. <laughs> Maybe we could have rephrased it like that, but since they didn't do the research on death metal singers, you know. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. And I, I like to uh, stress that the, the original article itself also says specifically death metal in it. So that, ah, that, yeah. cool, okay. But so yeah, they extracted the larynxes of these dead mice, or sorry, dead, uh, dead bats. And sort of passed air through them at like 250,000, uh, sorry, uh, passed air through them to get them to vibrate. And they're using a like very special camera that recorded 250,000 frames per second. They could see that it was like A, making the sound and B, also vibrating to, to essentially create that, that uh, death metal growl, but for, for bats. Okay. And uh, they sort of highlight that bats have an insane vocal range, probably the biggest of all like mammals, like at seven octaves, which is insane because like even like humans only have up to three and four, with the exception of like some really gifted singers like Mariah Carey or Axl Rose that can maybe hit four or five on a good day. Mm -hmm. So bats have an insane vocal range that comes from their yeah false vocal folds. So yeah, it was a... I, I just liked it for the death metal. Let's put yes, it Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, okay. that was that uh, honorable mention. Cool, cool. Okay, my next one is um, about a girl whose incurable cancer has been cured by base editing. It was really big in the news. The, the mm -hmm. article that we are now talking about was from BBC, but I definitely also saw it on the news. Um, and this is about a girl, Alyssa, who is 13 and from Leicester. I hope I'm pronouncing it correct, but don't know. Uh, and she was diagnosed with a T-cell acute lymphoma leukemia in May last year. Mm -hmm. And she had a really aggressive type of cancer. So she already had done chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant, but that was unable to get rid of all the cancerous cells in her body. So somehow these T-cells were hiding out somewhere. And that was of course a major problem because this was basically the last treatment that they could do and there were no other options mm -hmm. um, because chemotherapy is like the only thing you, you have to kill of these cells. Yeah. So they did something new 
team of doctors and scientists did this. Uh, they made new T cells from a healthy donor that were able of hunting down the cancerous T cells in Alyssa's body. So they took healthy T cells and then with base editing, basically CRISPR, they first disabled any any autoimmune responses so that Alyssa's body wouldn't attack the T cells, but also not other way around, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're foreign T cells, so you don't want that. And then they also cloaked these T cells so that a chemotherapy drug wouldn't kill them, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Then they removed the chemical marking called CD7 from the outside of the T cells, which is something that's on all T cells. And then they made sure that these T cells were going to hunt for any cells that have CD7. Mm. So they would hunt all the cancerous T cells that Alyssa already had in her body, not be killed by chemotherapy, uh, and not attack anything else in her body. Now, I wish there was already a paper about this, but there is not, because she's only the first of 10 uh, people who are in this trial to have this drug. Mm. So sadly, I couldn't find like any more specific information about what exactly they had done. Uh, but it sounds really interesting to be able to do with, with base editing. Mm-hmm. But apparently they had really specific genes that they could turn off in this case um, and, and already accomplished this. So these T cells were introduced in Alyssa's immune system and then were there to kill all the T cells. And then the idea was in the end to then do another bone marrow transplant with healthy T cells again. Mm. And I guess by that time, those attacking T cells were already out of her system because of co- otherwise that doesn't yeah, exactly. work. So I, I guess that was the idea. Again, limited details, right? Mm. Uh, now, while she was getting this T-cell treatment, of course, she had basically no immune system, so she had to be in hospital for a long time. And then they did already do the uh, the, the, bone marrow, the second bone marrow transplant on her. Mm-hmm. Um, now, after the three-month checkup, there were some signs of cancer again, but apparently in her most recent checkups, they were clear, mm. which was six months after the treatment. Uh, and these people were already really, really happy that she had been able to do Christmas with them and that she she was maybe able to lo- live longer, right? Mm-hmm. No, for sure. So they were already really happy with the results. Mm-hmm. And it looks okay now, mm-hmm. but you can really read in the article that they don't want to overpromise and uh, that that they're really hopeful, but that they don't know yet if this will last. Yeah, exactly. Because, of course, after her last bone marrow transplant, the cancer cells came back. Mm-hmm. And they hope now that these killer C cells that they introduced into her body were more effective than the chemotherapy. But yeah. you have to see. Yeah, no, fair. But uh, sounds promising, at least. Uh... Yeah, and apparently there are nine other people who are going to get something similar. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't think it's a lot of leukemia patients who would benefit for that, from this. Because usually when you do the chemotherapy and do the bone marrow transplant, that works. Mm. Um, but for the people where that doesn't work, this might be an option. Yeah, and yeah, additional options are always good for something like that. Yeah. yeah. No, sounds great. Well, I guess that brings me to uh, my next paper then, or next story. Mm-hmm. Male and female stem cells created from single person for the first time. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Original paper, paper in stem cell reports. And so what they did here is that they 
collected, immortalized beta, beta cell line that was originally derived from a, a man with Kleinfelter syndrome, a mosaic uh, Kleinfelt, Kleinfelter syndrome, sorry. And what this is, is that the, the patient has like different, both X and Y chromosomes in their, their cell lines. Ah. So, for example, that in the sample that the, the researchers used, they did a fluorescence in situ hybridization or fish analysis. So the, the, the person had like a combination of uh, 47XXY, for example, was about 72% of all the cells, uh, but then also had 46XY, so male, no, sort of normal male for 25%, and 46XX, about 3.5% of all the cells that they had to begin with. Mm. Uh, and then from there, using these beta cells, they tried to reprogram, in, pro, reprogram them into iPSCs or uh, pluripotent uh, stem cells and yeah they managed to do that but it was sort of unclear to me based on like the paper and the original the, the article that highlighted the paper where this would work for anyone who does not have Kleinfelter syndrome. Well it sounds like not. Yeah it's exactly right because if you have like a starting point where you already need the XX and the XY yeah. and I, so I had a quick look at exactly what the numbers might be for people who suffer from Kleinfelter syndrome and it's a one in 660, so not the best of numbers. Yeah, yeah no, that doesn't really help anybody, I think. <laughs> it's cool, mm -hmm. but you basically start out with a very rare you know. rare sample, and mm -hmm. then you do something fancy, well, something standard with it, and then turns fancy because you started out with a rare sample. I mean... Yeah. Although the benefit is if they ever do manage to figure out how to, let's say, if you have a starting male and then make that into a female cell or vice versa. Yeah, no, I was hoping that it would be something like that. Yeah, that's too. clearly not Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> like, but if you ever do get to that, like the entire point of the, the paper and why it's in some cell reports was like, yeah, this is super beneficial because then you can test like the same drug on both a male sample and, and the female sample and sort of detach this, the gender differences from mm. the genetic differences. So you know how a drug will react to the both females and males. And well, a little bit on cellular level. Of course, of course. Yes. Okay. But uh, okay, okay. that's I way see. more than what we currently have with everything sort of being mostly males now, right? I'm not sure if that's true. There's also definitely some cell lines that are female-derived, but I don't mm. think we take that into account so much. Yeah, but now we can with this platform. Yeah. yeah from Kleinfelter <laughs> patients, yes. True. <laughs> yeah. True. But yeah, it was definitely an interesting paper. So what do you have? Okay, well, my next one is called Resurrected 2.6 billion year old CRISPR enzymes can still edit cells, mm -hmm. which I thought sounded very cool. <laughs> it's a nature paper from some researchers in Spain. Mm -hmm. However, I was a bit disappointed <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't defrost billion and billion year, out, uh, year old mm -hmm. bacteria. or They just, yeah. They just used computing to sort of re-analyze how DNA would have evolved from common ancestors. Yeah. So they took different bacteria that are known to have CRISPR mm -hmm. and then sort of computed it back to what their common ancestors would look like, mm -hmm. what they have in common and what that, then that common ancestors would have as DNA yeah. and how CRISPR would have looked all the way back then. And apparently it was a lot less complicated back then, but it was, it had some benefits because it might be less immunizing for mm -hmm. if you add it to human cells. It's also uh, more, more efficient with single strand DNA and RNA. 
So they thought that this might be an interesting new CRISPR form. Uh, but I was a bit disappointed that it wasn't a 2.6 billion year old cell that they tested. <laughs> no, for sure. But I don't know how, like, I guess that probably has more to do with, like, the, the how the, the journalist reported it, right? Like, trying true. to sexy it up. True, 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 yes. <laughs> I don't know how you can sexy something 2.6 billion years old, but... Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. No, but then afterwards they also made these proteins, right? So yeah. that's that's the resurrection part, I guess. Yes, no, for sure, cool. So it was cool, and I mean, CRISPR is... Hot, hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it sounded cooler than it was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, uh, yeah, I think you you were anchored on the two point six billion. Uh... Yeah, well, I don't know. I was I was counting on like some frozen samples of like, but no sadness. Sadness. Okay, your turn. Yes. So I think some people probably have seen this paper come uh, make the rounds either on LinkedIn or Twitter or stuff like that. But it's about papers and patents are becoming less disruptive over time, and this was published in Nature. Okay. And sort of the researchers, um, what they did is that they, they analyzed claims at scale across like six decades. Like they looked at research paper, like 45 million research papers and 3.9 million patents uh, across different uh, research fields and across like six different large data sets to get that many. And together they, they analyzed all those papers using like, like their informatics. And they came up with a new sort of quantitative metric to determine whether a paper or a patent is consolidating or disruptive. And this metric they call the CD index, C for consolidating, D for disruptive. Uh, and what it basically means is if, if the paper or patent scores like closer to minus one, then it's more consolidating. So think of like if you have a new paper or patent on, I don't know how you would make a patent for mathematics, but like. You have like, you're referencing five different uh, articles and then your paper comes in. It's like, we tie those different articles to our paper and we we do like, it's essentially like a percentage increase then like, oh, we see that indeed this is important as these other people have also indicated, but we show just this slightly bit more of it hmm. uh, versus the disruptive is like one of the ref- one of the examples they give is the Watson and Crick sort of discovery of the DNA structure. Something um, completely new. Yeah, like, so everything that they reference in their paper probably isn't going to get referenced anymore. Like the, the triple helix structure that was proposed before, that's not going to get referenced because now we have the DNA structure. So mm. we don't need those previous references anymore. So that's what is, I guess, they term disruptive. And yeah, they showed like that a lot of papers nowadays are just, and patents are just far less disruptive than they used to be. And it's across multiple different fields. And they also try to look at what might be the explanations for this. So whether it's just um, the different requirements for actually publishing might be different. Um, Whether there's technological differences, maybe there's just too much information that people, you know, work differently. And what they basically came down to is they also show, and this is important for this um, explanation, is that a lot of scientists are self-citing now. So the selfs, the amount of things, the amount of researchers citing their own papers is increasing and is becoming more and more. And that scientists are often referencing or citing really old things. So the things that they first learned about and worked on or worked part of and cited before, they keep citing. So it's, you're never really emphasizing the newest things. You're not, never really trying to dig into a different field that's related, but very distant. 
And so you're never really going to end up with something disruptive. You're so, it's more similar to like the iPhone 14, a 10% improvement in the camera versus completely new feature on the iPhone, for example. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I thought it was interesting because there are lots of people sort of commenting on it. But the amount of analysis that went into this, this paper is pretty complex. And I think like even reading the paper and trying to understand exactly how they analyze the language and analyze these metrics and their specific CD index, it's kind of hard to understand that. Mm-hmm. But I think it, yeah, it, it does matter for how research is progressing, right? Like if things are not really disruptive and they didn't really mention it, but I wonder whether this has to do with, you know, science is pretty unstable in terms of your career. Like if you don't have high impact papers, if you don't, keep generating consistently you're out of a job essentially mm-hmm. so yeah of course you're gonna play it safe right like you're gonna cite papers that you well, know i don't think it's necessarily only that but it's mm. also that journals sort of require you to to build on something else and have mm. some some more proof and like yeah i think it's really difficult to publish something that is truly new no of course and I, often mm. you also see that that then end, ends up in lower impact journals yeah because there's less of a base for it that it actually like is true, right? Yeah, people aren't like willing to accept like if it is true hmm. that it's yeah. Yeah, no, but I yeah, I found this paper quite interesting because of like it makes you ask these questions of like what's happening with research and that yeah. and so yeah, okay. I thought it was interesting. Okay, next one. Uh it's called Gregor Mendel dug up and DNA analyzed. And it says when the man known as the father of genetics turns 200, how do you celebrate? By digging up his body and sequencing his DNA, of course. <laughs> so the scientist in the Czech Republic um, wanted to celebrate the 200-year anniversary of Gregor Mendel, who was, of course, um, the guy who investigated inheritance mm-hmm. and how that works. Even before DNA was even known about he already uh, laid the foundation for that. Uh, and during his life, his research wasn't really as appreciated as much as it became after his death. So um, he's a lot cooler now than he was during <laughs> his life, I guess. <laughs> but they thought it would be cool to dig up his body and to sequence it. Now, at first, I had a little bit of a... Why? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, but then I kept reading and it actually says that they think he would be happy with it because he wasn't against research on his own body. And before he died, he also requested an ex- extensive autopsy to be done. Um, so that makes it a bit more likely that he would be okay with it, right? <laughs> I mean, he's dead, so I care. Um, and that's not how it works. You know? <laughs> anyway, they dug him up, which was... Difficult because he was in a grave with his family members and there were four other brothers sort of stacked on top of him. What, so there were five in total, while on the gravestone it only said four. Awkward. <laughs> Which was already weird. Then they did find some newspaper clippings in, in one of the caskets um, that they thought was him from his time. Mm-hmm. So that was the first clue. And then the museum that has like the microscope and uh, some eyeglasses and some written records and a cigar case let them swap them. And they also found in a book about astronomy a hair of him. And then they compared that DNA to the DNA in the skeleton and then they felt pretty certain that they'd found Mendel's body. I then questioned like if you had all of that, 
then why yeah. would you need his body? <laughs> Detailed <laughs> analysis. Yes. That's the different thing, Look, I he guess. could have had a Klein filter or something. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, then you might wonder, did they actually find something? Well, yes. Uh, they found in his DNA uh, genetic variants linked to diabetes, heart problems, and kidney disease. And uh, most intriguingly for Fairbanks, the, the researcher, was a gene that was associated with epilepsy and neurological issues, which was apparently also he uh, suffered from during his life. Mm. Uh, and he always wanted to know why. And uh, that might very well be an inheritance condition, which was interesting, they thought. So that was it, basically. Now I'm curious to look up what he actually died of. Like, were those diabetes and stuff, did they matter for him? Oh, that I don't know. Yeah, would be cool. Yeah. Because now you actually have like, oh, yes, we've sequenced the person. We know that he had a risk for this. and then, But did he die of that? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> or no, suffered, they they yeah. don't say that. They no. don't say that. Further research is required. Mm-hmm. No, but cool. Well, cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least they gave sort of an indication that he might be okay with it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have this autopsy done also to like figure mm-hmm. out what this disease was. And like, so... Yeah. He didn't know about DNA, but they say that he would think it would be really cool research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> I wonder nowadays if you, could, if, if you could sort of program an AI chatbot to sound like Gregor Mendel and then say, like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if they know what he sounded like. Oh, yeah. Okay, next. <laughs> yes. So moving on from disruptive papers to uh, cows getting high. The next article that we're going to talk about is hemp-fed cows get high and produce THC-laced milk. Oh, well, that's hip. (laughs) Yeah, these these cows are living the dream, I guess, maybe. Uh, We'll find out. Uh, So the original paper was published in in Nature Food, so I guess pretty pretty high up there. And what they wanted to do is, so hemp is produced a lot for for the production of like cannab- uh, CBD uh, oils. Mm-hmm. And there's always just a lot of leftover hemp sort of there as a biomass um, that they can't really do anything with. Mm-hmm. And farmers were wondering whether, and scientists are also wondering whether you can use <laughs> that to, to feed cows, even though there's very little, a low level of THC still present in it. Will there ha- will it have any consequences on the cows and their products, their their mm-hmm. milk and their meat and stuff like that? So, thus the study to to feed cows with uh, hemp at different concentrations and see w- how, what behavioral changes occur in the cows as well as what can be measured in their milk. So that's what they did, and they found that the animals displayed a number of noteworthy changes after being fed the hemp, pronounced tongue play. <laughs> Uh, which I guess is different from their normal amount of tongue play. Uh-huh. <laughs> Increased yawning, salivation, nasal secretion formation, prolapse and reddening of the necessitating membrane, and a s- sort of sleepy appearance. Okay. So, yeah, the cows are basically high. Mm-hmm. And you would think, and they also looked into their milk, and at least I thought, if I remember correctly, the, the group with the highest concentration of the, the hemp had still a human level of significant THC present in their milk. Whether or not that still needs to be sort of cleaned up and, you know, processed in some way to actually be used by humans uh-huh. uh, and you can clean it up is, wasn't clear to me, but they sort of make the case that 
the amount of THC that would be present in milk is still potentially problematic for uh, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. it also doesn't sound so good for the cow. Well, actually, this is the the thing that I was surprised by that they sort of say like, well, if you actually this actually reduces their stress. <laughs> given their life that they live. Uh, poor cows. <laughs> so you could actually feed them hemp, reduce the biomass left over from hemp, reduce their stress. But as long as you take care to like uh, get them off getting high for like a couple days, weeks and stuff like that, and then get milk out of them, then it should be okay. And yeah, no, <laughs> just no. Again, I'm just quoting. <laughs> I'm not proposing this. I mean, if they want to sell it as a special type of milk that contains that I still don't think it's animal friendly, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily say like you would get the milk that it contains the thing. Like the, the entire idea is that you clear, you make the cows quote unquote happy for a I while. I am sure there would be some people interested in milk with THC in it. Yes, but I don't think you would add the THC to the milk. I don't think you would sell it like that. I don't think well, any... just as is. Yeah, I don't know if that will get through. There's, there's a market for that, for sure. <laughs> I think you would sooner say, like, happy cows. Uh, meat made from happy cows. Oh, I wonder if it's also in the meat. Yeah, exactly. But I couldn't uh, find anything about that. They really, at least from what I read, it was mostly they looked in the milk and measured that. I'm honestly already surprised that these molecules make it whole to the milk. Yeah, and actually, because they they said, like, the amount of THC that the the, the cows are getting fed, isn't really that much. It's not even enough to try and make the oil out of. It's actually way less than that. And somehow it gets, I don't know, concentrated or just accumulates there. Hmm. So, yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Cows getting high. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we've been missing in our AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot 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 and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. What do okay, you now uh, time for my honorable mention. Paper that's interesting, but I will only mention very quickly. Uh, Time-restricted eating reshapes gene expression throughout the body. Well, we, of course, did an entire episode about intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. They basically put mice on intermittent fasting or not. And then they found a lot of genes that were different in all different tissues that they tested. Uh, and they said that 80% of genes are changed in at least one tissue. Mm. 
So there's a lot of responses in tissues from doing intermittent fasting. Uh, and the main things that they found was less inflammation, uh, less oxidative stress, more RNA splicing and processing, more protein folding, more ribosome biogenesis. Uh, I think autophagy cell cycle regulation and mitochondrial functions are also regulated, but then in a Mendelian rhythm-like system, mm. uh, which was enhanced by this intermittent fasting. So they say that intermittent fasting might also have a real effect on the circ circadian rhythm in your body. Okay. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> well, then uh, I think I will proceed with the next paper that is called First, Virophore Discovered, an Organism That Eats Viruses. The original paper is from PNOS. And yeah, I, I don't know how much to say about it other than the researchers thought that viruses are so plentiful and, as and they have a lot of nutrients in, in nucleotides and uh, phosphorus and stuff like that. Uh -huh. It would only make sense, given how plentiful that they are, that something would have evolved to eat to them. Sure. Um, so that was the rationale, at least, that the author provides in the, the popular science article that uh, we first read about it. And what the researchers did is that they collected samples from pond water, isolated some of the different microbes, and then they added a specific virus called chlorovirus, which is a, yeah, a type of virus that infects green algae. Mm -hmm. And they added the different, yeah, the microbes with the virus, and they measured over the next couple of days, like which, popu which population of microbes is growing and how is the virus doing. And they saw that one particular yeah, microbe managed to actually start eating the viruses. And it was the microbe itself is called hal halteria. Yeah, I don't know enough about halteria to say whether this was sort of expected or not, but uh, halteria is now the currently the one and only virophore we know of. Okay. And they also made sure to test that it was actually eating the things by embedding like a um, fluorescent DNA tag in the, the chlorovirus. And then they saw that the DNA tag was indeed consumed in uh, present in halteria itself. Uh, so yeah, it did, it did indeed consume the, the chlorovirus. Uh, there's a little bit of a problem with distinguishing, of course, between eating mm -hmm. or being infected. Yes. Yes. And I, I'm sure that they checked it in the, in the actual paper, but... Well, they also looked at the overall population, right? Like, I mean, eventually you would expect to have more, more, what's the word for it? Just a bigger population. Like, if it was infecting the thing and, like, growing like that, you would expect to have more virus particles, right? But instead, oh. you actually have less virus particles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, the last one for me is about remote-controlled worms that can follow stop-and-go lights. We've done it. <laughs> Sounds very fancy. I have to say, in the original paper, they were looking at not exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> Slight variation. <laughs> But but the the the, the new atlas um, popular uh, article makes it sound really cool about how you can create remote controlled cyborgs, uh, also out of cockroaches apparently, nice. where you can steer them by electric uh, electrically simulating their antennae so that they turn away from a perceived obstacle. So apparently that's already been done. Mm -hmm. But now these researchers had these worms. 
uh, and they implanted light-sensitive proteins into the organism, which is not how they did it. They, <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they wanted to know if um, these proteins called opsins, mm -hmm. Uh, if they could improve them. So it's known that these proteins, uh, opsins, are sensitive to light and to different wavelengths of light. So different opsins respond to different colors, basically. And they wanted to see if they could make a more optim optimized one. And apparently a way of doing that is giving C. elegans this protein in the form of just having them eat a bacteria that has this protein in them. That's apparently a way you can do this. Assyria mm. uh, coli with this, these proteins in it, and then this is a way to do overexpression in certain cell types of the C. elegans. Mm. So they basically just made overexpression C. elegans in certain cell types, in certain neurons, and then they show, shone light on them. And then you can sort of see that they find this light now unpleasant because this protein is responding to it in these, in these neuron cells. And they did that with different types of lights, uh, different opsins that are more UV sensitive and less UV sensitive, uh, and they they investigated it like that. Mm. Uh, but this this article makes it sound really cool about how uh, if you uh, put these opsins in one cell type that you can make them move through through light, and then if you put them in the motor neurons, you can actually make them stop through a different color light, mm. which I guess they sort of did but it was definitely not the aim of this study <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting but again uh, an, an interesting interpreta interpretation of the actual paper that was written for sure although i also have to argue that probably the, the researchers would never say like yeah we made worms move <laughs> no <laughs> which was apparently also not new this was already done <laughs> But just with a less optimized opsin. And the only new thing about this was that they now had a more nice opsin that they could also make a bit wavelength sensitive so that you could have a, a low signal and a high signal and more like that. It mm. was more about optimization of these opsins and it was not let's make robots out of worms. Robot worm technology is so outdated. <laughs> I mean, a few episodes ago, we had the, the, the robot spiders, and yep. there, the scientists were actually planning on making robot spiders. But here, we were not trying to make robot worms. Did we ever figure out the reason exactly why? Because they are good in camouflaging. That, that, that's a <laughs> I our think reason. we discussed this. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. <laughs> but like, I want the real reason. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, to freak me out. Yes. Okay, your last one then. Yes. The very, very last. Indeed. I call it Robot Ninja Turtles. Okay. But it's actually called something else. It's uh, Mighty Morphin Turtle Robot Goes Amphibious by oh. Shifting Leg Shape. Okay. Published in Nature, of all things. So I think maybe we can add the link to the, to the paper, to the, like, the figures up, because there are figures for this. So basically, researchers made an amphibious robot that looks like a turtle. Okay. I can best describe it as if you've ever seen one of those robot vacuum cleaners, it kind of looks like that, but mm. blue with like flippers attached to it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and the flippers have a leg mode and a flipper mode. And what these flippers allow the, the robot to do is basically traverse both either on land on or, and or sea, because the idea is that traditional sort of ways that robots are made now are very rigid, very, mm -hmm. very specific to walking, for example, on land or being specifically designed to go and swim in sea. 
but not both mm-hmm. or do both well without it being very awkward in, in, in at least one of the circumstances. So the researchers wanted to build a sort of more amphibious robot that can do both pretty well. And they looked to tortoises and turtles for, for inspiration. So they created a land walking tortoise, the amphibious robot, robotic turtle called Art. <laughs> okay. Uh, and yeah, it can morph its limbs and flippers. And, I would yeah. have called it Michelangelo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. But yeah, hence Robot Ninja Turtles Go. Yes, no, very cool. Well, that were all our um, interesting scientific topics for today. We hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, papers we really need to read or science news we need to know about, you can reach us via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com. And you can also find us on social media. Jero, which one are those again? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and also Mastodon. Yes, great. Okay, well, we hope to see you all next time. Bye. Bye.